From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour was made on Friday when the world marked one year since Russia invaded Ukraine and attempted to eliminate Ukraine as a sovereign nation. By now, Russia's early assumptions are well known. The Ukrainian leadership would flee quickly. The capital would fall within three days. Some would even, to borrow a phrase, greet the Russian invaders as liberators. Well, now, of course, those were all wrong, and there is no end in sight to this war that continues to kill so many, to ruin so many lives, and destroy so many families. The Russian leadership has not indicated any intention of negotiating an end, and neither has the Ukrainian leadership. President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia has no right to even an inch of Ukrainian soil, and he will fight until Russia is expelled. And, of course, the Russian leadership continues to threaten the world with nuclear escalation. No one knows for sure just how serious those threats are. The United States Congress has continued to authorize funding for weaponry supporting the Ukrainian defense. This hour, we're going to bring in Congressman Joe Morelli, who has been steadfast in his support for Ukraine. We wanted to know if anything could change that and how he can foresee the war ending. Let me also welcome our guests in studio, Mikhail Gerstein, our colleague at WXXI, who spent a month in his native Ukraine this past fall. Welcome. Welcome back to the program, Mike. Nice to see you here. Always uh, good to be with you, Gavin. Um, thank you, Mikhail. And Alana Prokopovich is with us, director of the Political Science Undergraduate Program in History, Politics, and Law at Nazareth College. Professor Prokopovich, welcome back to the program to you as well. Thank you for inviting me, Evan. Let me start by bringing in the congressman. I had a chance to talk to him late Friday afternoon on that one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is Joe Morelli. Yeah, pleasure to be with you. Uh, we marked a really unfortunate anniversary, February 24th, of course, and I'm not sure a year ago anybody thought this war would still be going on, but here we are. I don't see any end in sight. And can I just get some, at first, some some general thoughts on whether you're surprised we're still seeing this war happening a year on and, and your general feelings on, on where it is? Yeah, I do. I, it's a, a great point. I think at the outset, uh, the uh, much of the sort of commentary and uh, much of the expectations, I think, even by uh, our military leaders, was that uh, Kiev would fall. Uh, some had suggested within uh, weeks, certainly within months of the uh, start of the hostilities and the invasion by the Russians. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, I, I think the fact that we're here. A year later, still contesting it, um, says a great deal about the resiliency of the Ukrainian people uh, and, frankly, the support of the United States and uh, and the NATO allies, which the president, I think, has uh, rather deftly uh, kept together. Uh, but it is a sad, sad state of affairs. I mean, the amount of human destruction and the amount of property loss and the amount of tragedy and trauma that this will inflict on literally generations of Ukrainians and Russians uh, who are being conscripted into fighting a war that they don't understand um, is uh, is almost unimaginable. So, uh, but yet here we are, and uh, we have to continue to uh, provide support for the Ukrainian government, and the Ukrainian people. Mr. Congressman, I, I, I'm always curious to know um, how much information is shared at various levels of government. I mean, to state the obvious, the president and his team know a lot more than we do about a lot of different aspects of this. Our intelligence community knows certain things that are not shared publicly. Do you get any, you know, regular briefings in Congress? What kind of information is shared with you? 
We do. There's there's different levels of briefings. Sometimes we're engaged in um, uh, uh, briefings that are not classified. So we'll get you know just information, and we'll get an opportunity to dialogue with uh, Defense Department officials, State Department officials, intelligence uh, uh, members of the intelligence community. Other times, uh, and pretty frequently. Uh, you are uh, in, involved in classified briefings. Um, members obviously have top security clearance, uh, and I served for two years on the House um, uh, for, uh, uh, Armed Services Committee. So I was in briefings uh, literally weekly, not always on Ukraine, but but yes, we get uh, not only uh, pretty detailed information that you would not be able to publicly uh, get, but also the opportunity to continue to go back and forth with members, again, of the defense, state, and intelligence community so we can ask questions and try to get more details on what the expectations are. And, uh, you know, we have civilian control of the military in the United States, so it's really important for members of Congress to be able to keep abreast. So those uh, are pretty frequent. Um, and uh, while some of it's available publicly, you can, you know, read it in the Washington Post or New York Times is often a great deal of detail. Uh, that is not shared for for obvious reasons with the public. Has anything happened that has led you to to feel that there has to be a limit to the funding and the length, the duration of the support that is at least at the current level that it has been from Washington for Ukraine? Yeah, I don't see that right now. I know that uh, there has been you know, publicly reported uh, comments made by uh, new speaker Kevin McCarthy that he uh, the, the end of the blank check era um, is here has arrived. But uh, truth is, in all the briefings I've been in, both uh, uh, non classified and classified, uh, there has been strong, steady support on both sides of the aisle in both houses uh, to continue the effort. And I suspect that that will happen. Uh, I don't think anybody ever gets a blank check. I think there have to be. Um, you know, the kind of guardrails which uh, allow us to know where our money's going. Uh, and that happens with these frequent briefings. But uh, but I don't see any let up uh, on either side in either house of uh, support for Ukraine. And, uh, and I'm grateful for that. Do you think Speaker McCarthy is feeling pressure uh, either as part of his deal to get the speakership to sort of placate some of the members of his party who want to end? Sub- I mean, there are members of his party. It's not a majority, but there are members in Congress who want to end support immediately or say that, you know, the fact that President Biden went to uh, Kiev when he could have gone to East Palestine is is an indication that he he doesn't care about his own people. I mean, you hear that kind of rhetoric. And I wonder if, if Speaker McCarthy is trying to placate those members by through some of his own rhetoric or um, if he truly is feeling like we've got to we've got to start curbing support. Well, I, there's certainly a lot of speculation that in order to become speaker, um, uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, engaged in a, a lot of um, back and forth with those members whose support he was trying to curry favor with. And I suspect that probably was part of the motivation behind his comments. Um, but uh, as I said, I think what you'd find is even though there's always outliers, there's always critics, there's people who are going to criticize uh, uh, President Biden for getting up in the morning. Uh, but honestly, uh, I, I've been, uh, as I said, pretty heartened by uh, both in, in, in just general conversation and, when I'm, and then also when we're in classified briefings with the breadth of support on both sides of the aisle, uh, again, in both houses, uh, for what we're doing as a nation, 
generally even generally supportive of the president in those briefings. I think there's always questions about why did you do X instead of Y? Uh, why do you do this? Why do you do that? Uh, but I think, honestly, the Defense Department and our military uh, personnel, as well as State Department officials, intelligence officials, I think they've all been very, very forthcoming with members of Congress. I think um, the the conversations uh, that I've been involved in have been very, very thoughtful, very professional. Uh, and I, again, there are certain outliers who like to gain headlines and say provocative things, but I don't think that at all representative of anything more than a very, very small minority of members of the House, uh, again, on both sides. Last March, Senator Lindsey Graham made some in my view, very reckless remarks about his view that he wanted somebody in the Russian circle to take out Vladimir Putin. I mean, to say that as a sitting senator, I think, is is very reckless. I understand a lot of people are wondering if it is possible that there would be some kind of mechanism to remove from power the Russian leader. And, you know, certainly I, there's a lot I don't know, obviously. One of two paths is probably what we're on here. Either he's consolidated power, there is virtually no dissent, and he'll be there as long as he can. Um, Or the longer this goes on, even his closest allies in the Kremlin get tired of it, and um, something could happen. I don't think anybody knows. I don't know if you have any insight into that, but I I do want to ask you how you realistically think this conflict can end. Well, first, as it relates to uh, Putin, we know the long history uh, not only within the Russian government, but in the old Soviet Union, that leaders often uh, came and went without any real uh, transparency. So, you know, you often don't know what's going on. He does seem to have solidified power. Uh, but there are more and more grumblings, you see, as he continues to switch uh, leadership in, in the military. Uh, last week, I thought it was highly unusual for uh, the Wagner mercenary group leaders uh, to criticize the senior uh, leadership of the uh, Russian military. So I'm sure there are, because there always are, um, you know, disputes, and, and people have it clearly are questioning Putin's leadership within the Russian Federation. Whether that ends up uh, materializing into anything, I think, is anyone's guess. I mean, they just they don't have elections. They don't have transparency. They don't have to worry about popular opinion. I think the, the, the really good question is how does it end? And I, I, you know, Evan, I think there's a lot of people who speculate. I don't think anyone really knows. I mean, you know, the real challenge here is even if you were going to negotiate some kind of ceasefire, as the Chinese have suggested, although I think there's a lot of questions about how, um, you know, whether that's a legitimate effort by them or they're just trying to placate people. Um, it's hard to to see how this ends well. I mean, uh, Putin, I think, from a diplomatic point of view or a face-saving point of view, would have a hard time uh, giving up Crimea, giving up portions of the Donbass in the east that uh, have really sort of been under Russian control for nearly a decade now. Um, Zelensky would have a hard time settling for any uh, further encroachment of lands that he and the international community recognized as legitimate Ukrainian territory. So how do you how do you resolve that? Um, and, 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 and honestly, you know, both President Biden and uh, President Putin this past week in separate speeches suggested this could go on for months, if not years. Um, 
I, I pray that that's not the case. Um, but if it comes to a, um, a diplomatic settlement, uh, it's hard to sort of see what elements could go into it, which would stop the fighting and allow both sides some degree of ability to claim victory. Um, so I think that's the problem. You, you usually um, you're looking for a way to give an off ramp here. Um, but for Putin, there doesn't seem to be one. And there also doesn't seem to be any limit to how much pain and suffering he's willing to inflict not only on Ukrainian people, but on his own people. Um, and that's a very dangerous thing. It's one of the reasons we're in this and we care so much about it is, uh, you know, self-determination and democracy is a way to limit some of the worst instincts in in the leadership of a country. And that that's not something that inhibits President Putin at all, but it certainly would inhibit a, a, a normal functioning democracy. So I don't know how it ends. I, I wish um, um, I wish we all knew. Here, here's and I just want to make this other point for people who you know wonder about this, uh, and and it's certainly something I think we all worry about is if this goes on for another six months, a year, two years, you know, you, you can almost sense a, a certain uh, level of not only frustration on Putin's part that he's not making any progress here, but I worry that he would feel more and more desperate. Um, and should that happen, if he starts to think about employing uh, tactical nuclear weapons or worse, uh, and we would be obviously in even more dangerous, unpredictable and horrifying position than we're in now. Do you think we're a long way away from that possible eventuality? Well, geez, I hope so. I, uh, I mean, it, it's it, people don't understand the United States and Russia combined have about 3000 intercontinental uh, ballistic missiles loaded with uh, uh, nuclear warheads. And just this past week, as I'm sure you know, Putin signaled the end of inspections by Americans of his nuclear um, uh, 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 arsenal, and uh, that effectively undercuts the last nuclear arms agreement that we have between our countries, which doesn't include China. They weren't a party to that uh, treaty, and they're vowing to uh, get to about 1,500 nuclear warheads uh, that uh, uh, can reach across the globe uh, so that they would be on an equal with us, so it becomes very, very dangerous, and and so we're, you know, walking this I think fine line, which we've been successful in doing up to this point, where we're supplying significant amount of of humanitarian and lethal aid to the Ukrainians, um, and and trying desperately not to trip, a, a, you know, a wire which uh, sets us off into a nuclear uh, engagement, which, um, you know, obviously I don't think I have to describe. The horrors of that potentially. So this is really uh, it, it, it is very very dangerous and it's uh, it's fragile in many ways. Well, and that's why I think people are wondering if you and if leaders, elected leaders, do want to start pushing Ukraine to negotiate in some way. As painful and as unjust as that might feel, is that something that should eventually happen, or do you think, look, this is still their fight, not our place to say? Yeah, I think we would certainly support them in that effort, but um, I think it's our opinion, and I suspect it will remain our opinion for the foreseeable future, that this is a decision that the Ukrainian people and Ukrainian leadership has to make about 
what kind of negotiation, if any, they should enter into. It is not our fight, as you say, although we're clearly uh, very much partisans in in the struggle and are going to continue to support them. But we don't believe, uh, and I think the Biden administration does not believe that our that we can go in and negotiate on behalf of uh, Ukraine. If, it, if we were to do that, it in some ways undercuts the whole argument we've been making that we need to support them and their self-determination and their democracy because we would be basically standing in for them. And, 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 and that would, um, as I said, you know, make the argument that we've made uh, awfully hard to uh, to uh, see as authentic and genuine. Okay, last couple of questions, and I do appreciate your time, Mr. Yeah. Congressman. Um, when it comes to what Congress has been willing to authorize in terms of the actual equipment, the right. uh, the the conventional wisdom now is that uh, you, Ukraine and President Zelensky will ask for something, the international community will say no, then they'll say maybe, and then they'll say yes. And um, you know there have there have been limits, of course, but um, yeah. do you think that that has been the trend? And are there limits for you in your mind where you say, "Look, for me, this is a no, and will continue to be a no"? Well, you know, I know people have said that. I, I've uh, you know seen uh, news commentators um, questioning uh, Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin and saying, "Why don't you give them what they want? You're going to eventually do that anyway." But truth is, we have been unwilling uh, to ship aircraft uh, to the Ukrainians. There, there was, you know, a, a plea by President Zelensky many, many months ago to help uh, construct a no-fly zone uh, with U.S. equipment, um, and we have been reluctant to do that. Uh, I know there's, uh, you know, a renewed push for F-16s uh, to patrol the skies. Um, what we have done instead is really used um, anti, um, uh, uh, anti-aircraft uh, systems like the Patriot missile system, they have one that's just incredibly sophisticated. Uh, we've used drones and we've used other devices really to make certain that the Russians don't have air superiority over uh, Ukraine. And I think, you know, from a textbook definition, they have not been able to achieve um, air superiority. Um, but this is, you know, again, to my earlier point, I mean, we're in a very, very uh, tenuous position because we want to do everything we can to help them defend themselves uh, and give them the equipment without tripping a wire, without crossing uh, a so-called bright line, which would uh, then um, give Putin the excuse to engage in uh, even more horrific things than he has done. And we certainly don't want to start uh, a nuclear engagement that ends up with hundreds of millions, if not billions, of, of people around the planet dead. So it's a uh, it, it you know and there's no perfect way to do this. I don't think anyone knows for certain. This is the this is the exact formula we'll use. This is the uh, exact outcome that will happen. I know people sit around and speculate and say, well, if we had just done this, this is what happened. But this is um, uh, uh, you know a, a, a multi-dimensional chess game with the with the most um, significant stakes in it that we've seen since literally uh, the the height of the Cold War in the 60s. So um, we have to be very, very careful. And I know probably most Americans aren't paying as much attention uh, to this as we might think they would. So I'm not sure how many know uh, or pay that much attention to what is going on. They obviously know we're still engaged in a conflict there. Um, But every single day is um, 
a, a more dangerous day in this world, and we're trying to do everything we can not to uh, not to you know trip that uh, that wire. Having said that, I, I don't. It's hard to speculate whether in another month we'll be sending F-16s or whether we'll be training uh, Ukrainian pilots on our aircraft. Uh, we have resisted so far, and I think there are good reasons to have resisted, but uh, um, but that could change in the future as well. Finally, what message would you send to especially the Ukrainian community in Rochester and in our, in our region? Well, I think the same message that uh, we've been sending for over a year, uh, we, we engage in ongoing communications. It is a very large Ukrainian community uh, in Rochester, and we're grateful for their continued um, involvement in it, their continued uh, willingness to speak to us about what they believe. Many of them have, as you can imagine, families uh, all over uh, Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, and so we meet with them regularly. And, and I think our message is, look, we're going to continue to be with you. We're going to continue to stand with you. The United States, which is, I, I think we're nearing $50 billion in supplemental appropriations for both military and humanitarian aid uh, in the last year. That will continue. We're not going to walk away from this. And frankly, those who suggest it's not our fight, and there are people who make this suggestion, we just remind them that there have been dark times in, in our history, uh, in world history, where uh, dark forces have sought to take over the world. And we you know, are taking this very, very seriously. It's, it's um, you know, democratic nations against uh, autocratic nations. And um, you know, we're, we're, we're very, very cognizant of, of the role we play in the world and the role we play in defending democracy um, here in the United States and around the globe. So we're going to continue the fight, and we're going to continue to be with them. That is Congressman Joe Morelli joining us as we mark one year and beyond now since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You've got his views there on congressional support for the funding of that uh, of the defense of Ukraine, really. They're not funding a war. They're funding the defense of a country that was invaded. Um, but there are, I think, legitimate questions about how far that goes. You've got a, a sense of where the congressman stands on that question, um, how long this goes, what the conditions are, and how he sees um, the different dynamics. You heard Congressman Morelli say that, yes, there is a growing group of Republicans, especially in Congress, who are opposed to continued funding of Ukraine's defense. Uh, but he believes that, for the most part, this remains a strongly bipartisan effort that some of uh, the loudest voices are the most fringe, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who um, you know, gets a lot of attention, but uh, most people uh, don't take her very seriously. So, um, so let, let's do this. Let's take our only break of the hour, and when we come back, we're going to welcome back Mikhail Gerstein and Elena Prokopovich. We're going to talk about what they heard from Congressman Morelli, what they see in terms of uh, the United States' support for the defense of Ukraine, the international community's efforts, how far that goes, um, and um, how they view the debate that, that, that is starting to crop up in places like Washington about how long this effort should last. So we'll come right back, and they'll join the conversation next on Connections. Coming up in our second hour, researcher Valerie Perry joins us. She works for the Democratization Policy Council in Sarajevo. She brings us The View from Europe, on the Western coalition that is supporting Ukraine. How strong is it? Is there anything that could fracture it? What is the view among many Europeans about where the war is going next? We'll talk to Valerie Perry and get her expertise next hour.
This is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Mikhail Gerstein is a native of Ukraine, a documentary filmmaker, senior operations technician, and our, our colleague here at WXXI. What did you hear from Congressman Raleigh, first of all, there, Mikhail? Um, well, first it was it was um, it was nice to see that the, the 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 United States congressman and as many others I spoke with uh, admitting that at the beginning of the war and a year ago, uh, the United States and all the allies and everyone uh, were didn't believe that Ukraine will stand. Uh, everyone uh, were given. Ukraine 72, 96 hours before it fall. And um, to me back then, it was like everyone joined the Russian propaganda wagon because Russian propaganda, not even at, at on day one, already celebrated the victory, even before. There are a lot of videos, a lot of uh, news from Russian propaganda saying that Ukraine is nothing. Uh, who's going to, like, you know, uh, the flowers will be flowing and thrown at the Russian forces and, 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 and things like that. And when I've heard Biden and others uh, were sort of supporting that statement, that was kind of made me angry those days. Um, it's changed, obviously down the road. It changed when everyone in the world seen that uh, uh, a freeborn nation stood strong and um, destroyed pretty much in the first few months, destroyed the elite, what used to be uh, called the second uh, best army in the world, uh, just with what they had back in the days. So uh, the I, I'm glad to see that Congressman uh, noticed that, and uh, the the tremendous help that the United States gives to Ukraine, it cannot be left unnoticed. Obviously, uh, that help and the 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 help of allies uh, of Ukraine is definitely, most definitely, much helpful. Professor Prokopovich, what did you hear from the Congressman? Um, Evan, uh, I certainly appreciated the message of steadfast support um, of, um, you know, daily engagement with this issue, even, um, you know, in the face of, you know, probably slackening attention that the American public can give. So those were, those were very, very hopeful messages combined with the uh, visits by President Biden and by um, Treasury Secretary Yellen. Um, these are all you know, to me, very optimistic, very hopeful signals. Um, the uh, the promise of continuing support, both military and economic, for as long as it takes, and I'm quoting here both Congressman Morelli and President Biden, um, these are, you know, certainly very, very important messages, especially in the face of what else is going on in the world in Europe, of the possibly changing position of China. Um, one thing that I didn't hear, but that's, you know, probably just, you know, because of the, con you know, how the conversation went and what questions, you know, you had time to cover, is what the U.S. is doing on the diplomatic front. Because there are some um, worrisome signals or reports from Europe um, about a possible, 
sort of plan um, to conclude a pact between NATO and Ukraine that, you know, might uh, really fall short of the kind of security guarantees that Ukraine is seeking um, and and press it into premature negotiations with Russia completely not, you know, um, cut down to size uh, where it would abandon its absolutely imperialist and maxim, maximalist um, interests. So I didn't hear um, an, enough, I guess, about the diplomatic side of things and the pressure that must be applied, um, you know, on, to China at this point is also another topic that's very worrisome because if China were to um, enter the conflict as the uh, supplier of lethal weapons, that would be a new and very, very dangerous stage. So, um, but then again, that's, um, you know, I'm sure the efforts are going full steam. It's just that, you know, it wasn't covered in the conversation. So let me address a couple of points there. Um, when the professor brings up China's role here, you heard U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken talking about this last week. Uh, some, um, I don't even know if it's speculation or some evidence that American intelligence has uncovered that China is considering sending the exact kind of weaponry and ammunition that Russia has, has largely run out of on the front lines. Um, and it would be a huge boost to the Russian effort to continue to be able to go on for a long amount of time to grind this war, to try to regain territory if China comes through with that. And so the Secretary of State is warning against that. You know, what kind of pressure beyond that? I don't, I don't know. It's not... Uh, it's not clear that that um, that the public is going to see very much of what happens um, behind closed doors there. But on the diplomatic side, Professor, your concern is that some of the reporting indicates that there are some voices, sometimes in the Biden administration, sometimes in Congress or elsewhere, saying, yes, we have to push for some kind of negotiation, a diplomatic solution, et cetera. Um, and, you know, it may not be the kind of deal that Ukraine wants here. The reason that I hear people say that, Professor, is uh, that without some kind of an agreement, some kind of a negotiated end to this, um, you have a power that has revealed itself to be sort of bumbling and weaker on the battlefield than it claimed to be. It is embarrassed. Vladimir Putin is embarrassed. But he also holds a capacity to do enormous destruction anywhere he wants in the world if he is cornered that far. And we cannot let it get that far, so we must accept a deal, even if we don't like it, some kind of a deal to make this end. That is kind of the argument that, that still has some traction. And I, I do wonder what you say to counter that. Evan, um, this is an excellent kind of uh, question, and it really gets to the heart of what is going on. So, Congressman Morelli quite correctly said that this conflict um, is much bigger than Ukraine, um, Ukraine-Russia. It is a global conflict. At this point, it's very clear. Um, uh, just by looking at who's supporting Ukraine and who is providing or considering providing lethal aid and other aid to Russia, you can see that it is really a contest between um, democracies of the world. Um, places committed to the to international law, to trade, peace, and human rights and liberties within their own societies, and a different type of society: um, autocratic, authoritarian, uh, imperialist, quite possibly, represented by Russia and China. So, 
everybody, especially Ukrainian Americans, you know, Ukrainians all over the world, Ukrainians themselves above all, uh, would like to end this war as soon as possible. But how the war is ended really matters for the future of humanity. If the war ends with further Ukrainian losses, with Ukraine having even less territory than, than it controlled in 2014, right, when Russia annexed Crimea and effectively occupied some parts of um, two eastern regions, if Ukraine ends up smaller territorially, uh, weaker in terms of you know, military support, that would be the um, that would be the defeat of the collective democratic world, you know, and that would set up the stage for much more dangerous things to come with newly aggressive and emboldened Russian Chinese regime and others, Iranian, you name it, um, seeing that the democratic world could not effectively protect a country that it pledged to protect in the Budapest Memorandum. Um, and it really could not even provide security for the easternmost countries. Um, you will notice that it is the countries that border Russia, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, that are not at all suggesting that this uh, war should end soon in some kind of negotiations, given what's going on on, in the, on the military stage. They're the closest. And they much more clearly understand than perhaps France, Germany, or other nations that the war cannot end on such favorable conditions for Russia. And right now they are favorable for Russia. Putin could declare victory right now, you know. And it's also clear to them that uh, negotiating with Russia is uh, a very kind of almost foolish business. I mean, this is the country that signed the Budapest Memorandum and other peace treaties with Ukraine, attacking Ukraine. What would stop it from attacking, you know, other nations, Moldova, Georgia, and then maybe possibly uh, the members of the smaller, weaker members of NATO? Okay. One other point on that before I send it over to Mikhail for his thoughts. Um, that's, that doesn't address those who are calling for negotiations. That doesn't address their concern that a complete Ukrainian victory would would take us way too close to Putin deciding to push a nuclear button. What do you think, Professor? Um, that's that's a difficult one. So the thought that there must be some kind of face saving um, method. Um, employed to end the war has been sounded um, for a very long time. Um, but I think um, their creative, face-saving um, diplomatic solutions, other than to award Russia more Ukrainian ter territory at the end of, or any Ukrainian ter territory at the end of this conflict. Um, I think it is important that um, Russia and and also China with it uh, not perceive the democratic world as weak. That, I think, is the most important um, thing. Now, I have read the opinions that Putin would not, will not use tactical nuclear weapons. And I'm, you know, I'm ready to listen to the logic of that. Uh, I'm not convinced 
um, that the use of uh, tactical nuclear weapons is in the interest of Russia in any way. Um, I think their use in Ukraine would um, would vault this conflict into the stage where um, the aid from the democratic countries, military and, and economic, would just, just skyrocket. The use of nuclear weapons is such a line that um, I don't think Russia would want to cross it. Mikhail, are you concerned that whether within the Biden administration or in parts of Europe or anywhere that you know, sort of has supported so far the defense of Ukraine. Are you concerned that there is a growing chorus that says there's got to be negotiation at some point? Well, let, let's, uh, yes, I am concerned, like if it's a short answer. Um, and I just want to mention that many European countries, including Poland and the Baltic countries, already declared Russia as a terrorist state. And if I'm not wrong, the United States not negotiating with the terrorists, although there were exceptions. And Russia di is acting like a terrorist. Um, <clears throat> it, uh, yeah, it tried to defeat Ukraine on the ground, didn't work. Uh, the murdering, the stealing, the murdering, they tried to uh, take down the infrastructure to freeze Ukrainians. It didn't work. So these are all steps of like terrorists do. And um, if then I, I agree with uh, Alana that even if some sort of agreement will be reached, Russia cannot be trusted. There, are, there are historical uh, examples of it with uh, uh, Chechnya going back. Uh, Georgia even, and uh, it's every agreement since f from Russian side, it would be just taking a break. And I think we talked about it before, uh, um, and I, I mentioned it. They, if Russia will go for negotiations, and even if they will back up from the Donbass region or uh, give up some of the territories, they invaded uh, or occupied. Um, it's just going to be it taking a break to recoup, regroup, gain more power, and attack again. And at this point, um, I want to uh, go back to this. We will support Ukraine as long as it takes. Uh, they're going to bring us to very sad um, side of that Ukraine been asking for m larger support at the beginning of the war. And in my opinion, as well as opinions of the Ukrainian government and many in Ukraine, if that support Ukraine getting now would have been given to Ukraine a year ago or six months ago, the war could have ended sooner. And the only way to negotiate would be to defeat Russia and Russian forces. Uh, that maybe will bring them to negotiation and you know, signing the uh, defeat or you know, uh, agreement and the repatriation, which actually that's going to be another one. If you're going to go negotiate with Russia, 
what about repatriations? What about repaying for mm -hmm. all the damages Russia has done to Ukrainian people, mainly in Ukrainian land, Ukrainian cities and towns which were destroyed? Let me also address something that my email inbox is reflecting. Um, I understand that Congressman Morelli is saying that the support for Ukraine in the American Congress remains bipartisan despite growing Republican opposition. Um, and I can say that I have several emails from conservative listeners who are expressing strong displeasure for the American funding of defense, the defense of Ukraine. And let me read some examples here. First of all, one, one note from a listener says, it used to be that Democrats talked about hating war. I guess their hate for Russia outweighs that these days. That, that is embarrassing. If you want to claim that you've got reservations about the cost of the American support ongoing, that you've got concerns, and I'll read some concerns about corruption or whatever, we can talk about that. But some sort of whataboutism game? Well, what about Democrats didn't like, I thought they didn't like war. Well, this war is going on forever. I guess it's their fault. Yeah, I guess it's Democrats' fault. Good one. I guess it's Democrats' fault that, that Russia wanted to erase Ukraine as a sovereign nation. Do you, that should be an, that is embarrassing. The idea that, well, I, I don't know. Do you want to flip that around? I thought conservatives used to defend against tyranny. But Joe Morelli is saying they largely still do. But that comment, no. That, that first one's absurd. Now, here, here's another one, Mike. How about this? Is Ukraine planning to invade Crimea? I read that on the news. You're a Ukrainian, Mikhail. When you, when you hear a conservative listener say he's concerned that he heard that Ukraine's going to expand this war and invade Crimea. The Crimea is the part of Ukraine. Historically, okay, like from 1944, uh, when it became the part of Ukraine as a, uh, Ukrainian autonomy, Autonomic Republic, but the Crimea is the part of Ukraine. So that's answering to those who think that uh, it was part of Russia. Uh, it's absurd. Um, then that other one, the, the one you read before, uh, okay, close your eyes, imagine that no one helps Ukraine, Russia takes over, um, destroys all the Ukraine because this is the main purpose of destroying completely the country, the nation. Uh, and they'll go further into Europe. And if no one will stop them in Europe, the next is the United States. And if you think that the ocean divides us, it's not going to be a big divider at that point. Um. Olena, how do you feel when someone says, I heard that Ukraine's considering invading Crimea? Uh, I, well, <laughs> I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Exactly. Um, so Ukraine is considering returning Crimea, its territory, um, territory within its borders that um, so many nations have pledged to, you know, uh, uphold its territorial integrity, including Russia. So... Um, you know, uh, I I would I would hope that this was simply a casual use of the phrasing, rather than the failure to understand that Crimea um, is indeed you know part of Ukraine and returning Crimea would um, 
defend. No, I mean, if you're watching Newsmax or Tucker Carlson, this is consistent messaging. This is very, mm-hmm. And these are very, very well watched. You know, Evan, yeah. I, this is what I want to say uh, about this. So, um, so first of all, I think Americans ought to think back on World War II. And uh, because what is happening right now is a very, very similar fight. And they ought to think about how long it took the United States to come around to a position, but that when it did come around to a position, um, it became, I hope, um, pretty clear to a solid majority of Americans what the fight was about and that the fight could not be avoided. So, um, but I would like to point the following um, out, is that Russia and China have been fighting not just conventional war um, and, and actually saying that they're fighting the collective West. This is what Putin has said many, many, many times and his spokespeople. But they're also fighting to splinter democratic societies from within. They're fighting cyber wars. They are working through parties, through politicians, by using funding and um, you know cyber operations. Their goal is to undermine European Union and its societies, the United States in in particular. The failure to understand the danger that both Russia and China pose to the United States is very, very, very myopic um, and and very dangerous. I think Americans have to uh, pay attention to growing threats that are not just all military, but economic cyber influence operations, and they ought to think very carefully about the fundamental values that are threatened here. And I think they have to rally around bipartisan, um, considerate, multi-year approach to facing those threats and ultimately winning. Otherwise, I don't even want to think about what what is otherwise. Let me read two other, um, I, I think, more uh, more viable concerns here, and, and our guests can address them. Number one, an emailer says, Ukraine was the poster child for a long time for corruption. Are we accounting for the money that we're sending? Fair enough. Um, I, I think the political situation is very different, but at the same time, the Zelensky government has moved in recent days to try to remove people who have been viewed as uh, perhaps uh, acting in corrupt ways or uh, and I'm sure uh, pr- the professor can address that as well. Here And then Charles emails to say, Evan, the U.S. is giving more aid than every other EU country combined. You know, it's funny. You'd think that countries would actually have to deal with a Russian invasion would be treating the situation with a greater sense of urgency than a country with 3,000 miles in between us. I suppose the rest of NATO is happy to let us bail them out again. When are the potholes on University Avenue going to be fixed, by the way? I assume we're, if we're giving... A lot of money to another country. All the other problems taxes are supposed to fix have been handled. Okay. So the cons- two separate concerns. Number one, can we account for the money? Is there any concern about corruption? And number two, um, if we have our own internal issues, why are we spending so much to help others? Um, briefly, Professor, you want to hit those? And I'll ask Mikhail to hit those as well. Go ahead, Elena. Um, sure. So um, the military equipment um, is uh, – you know, so vital and, and it goes so quickly and is used up and taken up so quickly that I don't think uh, corruption is a concern there. Um, financial aid, actually, EU has spent more on financial aid, economic aid, than the United States together. Um, military aid, you know, well, obviously, you know, United States is a shield for the entire NATO and European Union, and it would take them a long time to ramp up their militaries uh, if this is what 
you know, NATO decides is, is in the interest of all. So, um, so I actually think EU is pulling its weight in terms of economic aid. I also want to point out that in terms of GDP, some of the countries that have been most generous in giving are some of the smallest countries like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Estonia, for example, gave more than 1% of its GDP. United States, less than 0.04. No, I'm sorry, 0.4. So, um, and and again, the United States is incredibly generous, you know, in in its support. Now, what about our internal needs? um, So, I don't think it's either or. Um, The very, very massive um, infrastructure bill that has been passed by the Biden administration will bear fruit. The, there will be improvement in our infrastructure. I'm quite confident of that. Um, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. I don't think we should think about it this way. But also, fundamentally, if we do not protect the United States and the democratic world from the growing threats of authoritarianism, potholes will not matter at that point. Okay. They really won't. People really have to understand that, that China and Russia can foment growing authoritarianism and even fascism in the United States. That's not a joke. And then potholes will not be our problem at all. Mikhail, so one has to think of fundamentals. Mikhail, are you concerned about corruption? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a short answer, yes. But here is a, here is a couple of things on that corruption question. Um, yes, the corruption in Ukraine was always been a big concern. And yes, every, every president, president of Ukraine's administration was trying to deal with it. I think Zelensky is doing it much better than anyone else before him. Um, Was it enough done? Short answer, no. But he's not Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, That's true. But again, was it enough done? No. There are are concerns in Ukrainian society right now, even during the war, about the corruption. I I read it. Uh, Alena is reading it probably too. Uh, My personal opinion... This has to be pushed to the time of after the victory because these kind of big questions like corruption and pushing the, you know, blaming Zelensky or somebody else from his administration, it brings the divide during the war. And right now... So you're saying Ukraine, focus on the war, survive right the war, now, and then focus... I'm if, pretty if, sure the, the, uh, the, those who are dealing and investigating, the investigators, are doing their job right now while, as we speak. But it has to be addressed after the victory because the victory over Russia is the most important right now. My guests who joined us this hour, when we spoke uh, a year ago when this invasion was rolling out, it was hard to envision where we'd be in a year. I don't know where we will be a y- another year from now, but I know that Mikhail Gerstein and Alana Prokopovich and many of their colleagues and contemporaries will be welcome on these airwaves to continue we'll the conversation. We'll go to Crimea, the Ukrainian one. The Ukrainian. Mikhail, thank you for being here. We appreciate it. That's Mikhail Gerstein, our colleague at WXXI. Professor Alana Prokopovich from Nazareth College, please continue to come back and, and add your expertise and perspective. We so much appreciate it. Thank you for having me on the show, Evan, and thank you for bringing it up again. Thanks. All right. A perspective from Europe coming up on this issue next hour.